Listener Production. Hey there, here's a special uh, Easter Monday episode of The Briefing. Yeah, we figured today was a special day. We're going to skip the headlines and we're going to go straight into a very interesting interview with a real-life Jason Bourne. Or James Bond. (laughs) Depends what you're into or probably which generation you come from. Exactly. Yeah, now it's very rare that a spy actually speaks out publicly because, as you'll hear, when they join the Secret Service... They basically have to ghost their old life, stop contact with all their friends and family. Yeah, but the former French spy that you are about to meet, so he's moved to Australia and he's written about his nine years in the French Secret Service under the guise of fiction and using a fictional alias as well, Jack Beaumont. Now, the book is called The Frenchman. Yeah, and the real-life Jack Beaumont says he served in the French Foreign Secret Service, the DGSE, from 2005 to 2014. Yeah, now DGSE um, stands for, and I apologise in advance to every French person that has to listen to me pronounce this, Direction Générale de la Sécurité Extérieure. <laughs> voilà. Yeah, for those of us that don't parlay Francais, um, <laughs> it's a General Directorate for External Security. Yeah, it's, it's the French equivalent of Britain's MI6, which is the organisation James Bond worked for. In the movies. In the movies, sure, yeah. I think one of the most fascinating parts of this interview is hearing him describe the techniques that he used to manipulate the foreign sources into giving him information. Yeah, when he was working under a cover, like pretending to be someone he wasn't. Yeah, I have to say it's a little bit twisted, but it's also quite fascinating. Here's the interview with Jack Beaumont. All right, well, we'll get this started. It's, I guess, a strange interview to speak to someone who isn't using their real name and it's interesting that you've created a a pen name and you've written a fiction book. Is that because it's quite hard to talk about your experience directly? Um, No, it's not because it's hard. It's more uh, just to add an additional layer of security for my family. So tell us about your time in the the French secret intelligence agency. Um, When did you join and what made you want to do that? Originally, I was a fighter pilot in the French Air Force. Uh, so I was flying uh, Mirage 2000 uh, single-seaters. And uh, I had a flying accident. I injured my back. Uh, and then uh, I switched to uh, special operations. I became a, a pilot for special operations. And the people I was transporting in different countries, so I was doing uh, illegal landing, you know, by night on roads, on fields, all this kind of stuff. And the people I was transporting were actually uh, all from special forces, all from uh, the external uh, secret service, the DGSC. And then after, after doing this for a few years, uh, I had to stop flying again because of my back injury. And those guys who uh, became friends said to me, why don't you try to join us? And it looked uh, fun. So I did the test <laughs> to join. I was selected. And when I joined internally, uh, I was selected to be on the field as an operative. And I did eight years uh, on the field. When you say it looked fun, what what aspects of the DGSE seemed fun? It was uh, all my life, you know, it's the same for fighter pilots. I mean, I always wanted to, to become a fighter pilot. And it was um, this adrenaline and uh, taking risk. But in the same, pa- same time, you have to anticipate everything. It's very professional. It's a very hard training. And it's uh, exceptional jobs um, that not everyone is doing. Uh, it was the same when I jumped into the special forces, and uh, and it was the same uh, for the secret service. It's a it's a work which is uh, 
uh, allowing you in a way to do things that no one else is doing. Uh, you have some really uh, amazing and crazy moments like you see in movies, but in the same time, uh, it's, it's very hard and it's very hard uh, psychologically. It's very hard uh, physically. The training is really hard and uh, every uh, tiny little bit of uh, every second has to be anticipated. When you joined, did you have to sort of go go dark? Did you have to go undercover and, and cut yourself off from a lot of the world that you knew? Yeah, yeah, a lot. I was requested to basically lose my friends, uh, especially the military friends. So I've, I've actually lost a lot of friends who uh, didn't understand why suddenly uh, when we were like really, really close and flying together, etc., why suddenly, you know, I was not replying to their, their text message anymore, or mm. to their calls anymore, all this kind of stuff. So some of them were really uh, upset with me mm. and closed the door uh, on their side. And when I left the services and I recontacted them and I said, look, I'm sorry, but that's, that's what I was doing. Uh, some of them understood and some others didn't. Was that hard for you just to kind of ghost your friends and not really be able to... Ghost ex- your life. Ghost your life, yeah, and not really be able to explain to people why you've done that? Yeah, no, it's it's very hard. And the, the, so the, the, the book, the, the, the Frenchman I wrote, uh, is, is, it's, a, it's a fiction novel, okay? So it's, it's more in the Le Carré vein than, than uh, James Bond, so it's very realistic. But the reason why I did it, it's because I wanted to address uh, the fact that... Uh, Mainly, let's say 90% of us are married with kids. Mm. Uh, and, and, and that's what you don't see in movies because, I mean, James Bond is single, Jason <laughs> Bond is single, you know? And it's, in, it's uh, in a way, it's very easy to die when, when you are single. Um, so, but the reality is that most of us are, are married with kids. And, and that's why we are having false identities and that's why we are having our, our false lives and false names uh, is to is to basically protect the family and that's to go back to your question that's what is really hard is that basically you also have to cut your family from uh, so your wife from uh, her own friends oh man so so you you have to um, you are of course remaining with your wife and your kids but even the the friends of your wife uh, can't know and mustn't know uh, you are forcing, in a way, your wife to uh, to go very quiet and to go very uh, discreet as well. So you're losing a lot of social life. You're losing a lot of social network. You're losing a, a part of the family as well, like the uncles, cousins, and whatever, to who you can't tell. I hope the payoff's good because it sounds like you're giving... <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's not. Okay. <laughs> well, you said it was about adrenaline, but it must be about more than that for you to give up your whole life and for you to somehow convince your wife to give up her whole life as well there must be a deeper purpose to this. I come from a very old French family, uh, which has been uh, fighting for France for years and hundreds of years. And my grandfather was actually uh, really a, a hero of the Second World War. He was one of the first free French forces and, and one of the first uh, French uh, guys to enter the Eagle Nest in Berchers Garden. Uh, and so he raised me partially because um, my, my, my family, my parents were, was a bit complicated at home. Uh, and so he transmitted me this fiber of feeling of how, you know, this will to, to defend the, the, the country. And, and uh, I knew that I was capable of doing something that not anyone could do. I was capable of living 
living stuff that not anyone could live. So this was exciting, the exciting bit. And in the same time, I knew that I could be in a world that not everyone accesses and, and being a part of the history of my country and, and really try to make things change and really fight the bad guys, not just pretend. So in which years were you serving? What, what time span did those eight years go over? Uh, so it was uh, 2005 to 2014. I'm asking you that because I'm wondering what threats France was facing during those years. I mean, I guess we were seeing the, the war in Afghanistan. There was the rise of Islamic extremism, um, those kind of threats. What were the key missions that you were assigned to and how were you defending France? Uh, it's it's uh, spying. Uh, I mean, you spy for uh, you spy on anything which is for the interest of your country. So it can be uh, on uh, big topics like counterterrorism. It can be uh, counter proliferation, so uh, nuclear or you know uh, weapon dealing, this kind of stuff. It can be finance. It can be counter espionage in other countries. It can be a lot of different things. So what do you think was the the biggest achievement of your time in the intelligence service. What what threat did you did you notice or did you stop? Uh, the main feeling of the main achievement is when uh, when you have someone who is a bad person uh, who uh, you've been working on for one year and a half or two years, who finally one night opens his mind, let's say, and and reveals to you uh, some really really uh, critical information on something which is happening in, a, in his country. Mm. Uh, and, and then a, f- a few days after, you can see the French president talking publicly and, and to this country and the, the position of France, uh, the France taking uh, positioning itself uh, geostrategically, uh, using this information and, and positioning itself the right way and avoiding a mistake uh, thanks to the intelligence you've been grabbing. I mean, that's huge. And you you sound like you reflect back on your time as an exciting time, a time full of adrenaline um, and a time that was rewarding. Sometimes when we talk about these kind of roles, it's like police officers will tell you that their job can be quite boring sometimes. They're sitting in an office, they're pushing papers, they're waiting in cars. Is the life of a spy similar to that? Were, you, were there moments where you were just doing admin or was it exciting all the time? No, no, no. There is a, it's, it's not exciting all the time. Uh, there are some parts, of course, when you come back from your mission, you have a, a huge amount of reports. Everything has to be written. So you have to remember everything. You have to transmit, of course, those informations. Uh, and so you have to do it in a very specific way. Uh, so you have to, write, to type your, your reports and, and being as precise as possible because the, the strength of the Secret Service is memory. So those reports have to be able to be uh, read by someone in 20 years' time. I was interested in that um, that thing you said before about the moment you convince a foreign operative or, or someone who's even a threat or an insider to a threat to say something and to reveal something. I wonder what those dynamics are like. Are you pretending to be someone else? Uh, are you spending a lot of time winning that person's trust? How do those relationships work with those sources that you're trying to tap? So you have, you have different kind of, um, of intelligence. We, we, we consider that you have, um, let's say, 90%, 90% of intelligence is what we call white. It doesn't mean that it's easy to find, but it means that you're not breaking any rules to find it. So, uh, for example, uh, when you are listening to a mobile phone, 
the, the, the conversation, uh, the wave of the mobile phone is in the atmosphere. And if it falls in your big plate, you haven't been stealing anything. So it's white. Uh, but you're still listening to a conversation. And now you have 9%, which is gray. It means it's uh, in, usually in someone's mind. Uh, but this person is not trained to protect it. Uh, but it's in someone's mind. And then you have 1% which is black. So the information is voluntarily protected. So in a safe, in an encrypted hard drive, uh, in a locked suitcase, and in someone's mind. But this someone is trained to protect it. And he knows that he mustn't give away this information. Mm. Uh, so you have to do what we call an environment. So to follow, to observe, etc., until you detect which will be the leverage. And so you have for everyone, every one of us, there is four potential leverage. And it's called what we call the MICE, M-I-C-E. So M is for money, I is for ideology, C is for coercion, so threatening, blackmailing, etc. Uh, and E is for ego. So when you are uh, doing the environment of someone, you are trying to detect and to identify his MICE. And then you will enter his life, starting to play on the mice you've been detecting. And then you create this relationship uh, until, so of course, pretending to be someone else. Uh, and you enter this person's life. Uh, and Or you reach a certain point where you can't get closer and you make another guy coming in uh, who is playing as an actor as well, another character, but with a different cover. And this different cover will allow him to get closer. Uh, until you finally reach the moment where you hook the person. And this person doesn't have the choice anymore to tell you. All because you you uh, hooked uh, this person with money and uh, got used to this money, or because of ideology and wants to help you because uh, he wants to fight himself against, uh, against this other country, uh, or for coercion because you have some pictures of him with a, a prostitute or mistress or whatever, and he doesn't want his wife to know. Uh, or because of the ego, uh, because uh, he wants to uh, tell the, everyone how he's been winning this deal or how he did this and how he did that. So what were the covers that you were using? What, what sort of people were you pretending to be to lure in these sources? Uh, you can be... Uh, basically anything you want to be. So you adapt the cover, you, 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 you define the cover depending on the target. Uh, and of course, you mustn't look like a spy. You can be a reporter, you can be a war journalist, you can be a war photographer, you can be a consultant, uh, you can be anything. You can be a teacher, you can be anything. A waiter. I've been, I've been, a, I've been a waiter on, on boats, uh, you know, and, Bringing the, the 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 beers and the drinks around to the people wow. who were doing a who were doing a deal in the same time. I mean, you make it sound like it's an easy thing to do. You can be whatever you want. How do you get into that character? Is there a training that you have to do? And are you scared that you might slip up? There are some trainings uh, for sure. Uh, specifically, when when um, specifically when you have some uh, some special knowledge associated with this cover. Uh, so you have to be trained by the specialist of the company uh, on, on this topic uh, to know what you're talking about. Otherwise, your, your cover won't last very long. Uh, about losing yourself, yes, it's very hard. Uh, that's why the, 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 you have a very high rate of divorce in, in, the, in the company uh, because it's very hard to be someone else like this and to play this character, to play this role, basically. 
And uh, and then at night you have to come back home, and making sure that you are not followed for sure mm. uh, before re re being yourself again. And then you arrive home and you have to be a, a husband and a dad, and uh, with all this in your mind, with what you did a few a uh, few hours before. You said earlier that you were inspired to do this and and take all the personal costs that came with it because of your desire to protect your country, France. So why did you end up leaving the intelligence service, and why did you leave France and come to Australia? Why I left is because the, the, what they're asking you and what the job is basically uh, asking you, as I was explaining to you before about the manipulation of the sources, etc., uh, you have to develop your own dark side. You have to develop it as much as you can because you will have to fight the bad guys by not being an angel, but by being uh, as bad as they are. And one day you realize that actually this dark side, which you thought was still under control, uh, is actually uh, taking the, the, the leadership of your soul. Uh, and you look at yourself in the mirror and you think, I'm a monster. And your wife uh, hardly recognizes you and, uh, and your, your everyday attitude, uh, even on the weekend, uh, walking around with her and the kids, total paranoia um, all the time. Your wife says, look, you know, uh, mathematics, physics, engineering, fighter pilot, transport pilot, commercial pilot, MBA, blah, blah, blah. Please go and find a real job. Yeah. How do you return to any kind of normalcy after that? By uh, being an author and writing an espionage novel. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, really, did you did you have to go and see a psychiatrist? Are you doing journaling in the morning? A lot of meditation? I mean, what? Uh, no, I, meditation is a good thing. Clearly, uh, it's clearly a good thing. The the the, the, the actually the, the book the Frenchman was a part of this uh, psychological process. So it was very cathartic at the beginning. That's the reason why I decided to do it. I was walking around. So you have a kind of PTSD. Mm. And and you, uh, I was walking around my house at 2 a.m. with my knife in my hand, uh, naked, and checking every door and every window, and then sitting on the couch and looking at the door, wow. thinking that someone would come in, uh, because I was doing it to others, so why why no one would do it to me? And then you think, uh, that's not good. Uh, so I tried to see, <laughs> once to see a psychiatrist, and when I see I saw this person, and I started to explain uh, my, my basically background and, and my, my issue. Uh, she looked at me with big eyes, uh, thinking I was all the biggest mythomaniac she has ever met, she has ever met uh, or a very dangerous person. Uh, so I could see clearly that uh, she couldn't understand. You know? uh, so that was, I knew it couldn't work. So writing a book uh, was a part of this process. Well, Jack Beaumont, you had to construct that identity to be able to write that book. And because of that, we can't actually verify that anything you've just told us is true. <laughs> it does sound like you really know what you're talking about. I, I believe you. Is there anything you can say that can prove that you haven't made all of this up? The only thing I can say is that uh, I did this book very selfishly uh, for the, the reason I just expressed. And I honestly, uh, I thought that only my family and friends would read it. <laughs> and, and, and now it's, uh, it's going a bit crazy. I'm having discussions at the moment with uh, people in, in the US who wants to make a, a TV series out of it because it sounds so real. And, and the reason why it sounds so real is because it, it is real. And just finally, Jack, how are you doing? How's your marriage? Is it still intact? You doing yeah. okay here in Australia? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, so my wife is uh, is Australian. I'm Australian myself uh, uh, now. 
my wife is from Byron Bay, so it was it was quite funny at the beginning when we met. And I was still uh, flying jets uh, because she comes from a hippie background, a hippie family, and I was <laughs> and, I, and I was flying and I was flying jets. Uh, no, no, we're doing fine. Uh, kids are well, and my wife is well, and we're still uh, we're still in love and still together. Yeah. And right. she deserves uh, and she deserves much more much more medals than I do. That was a former French spy. He served with the French DGSE for nine years. I'm looking forward to the movie and how they depict his new life in Australia. I love that there's this guy who's lived this very hectic life, just possibly in the regions. Chilling. Throwing some shrimps on the barbie, <laughs> hanging out with his fam. Good on him. And tomorrow on The Briefing, how to negotiate better pay. Listener.